Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Good morning. I want to read you this story. Then we can talk about it. If you want to follow along, it's Luke chapter 9. Starting in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus said to him, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Theologians and Bible historians call this the third most important event in the life of Jesus Christ. His birth, the resurrection, and then this one sandwiched in the middle. This seemingly unexplainable, bizarre experience that only a few people got to see that somehow brought back people who had previously gone and they're having a conversation about what's going to happen in the future and then there's three of us sitting there watching this unfold. I love the line, for he did not know what he was saying. There's been many times in my life to where I have prayed things to where I didn't know what I was praying. Like I prayed for a thing and then I got it and I was like, that was the wrong thing to pray for. I, I prayed wrong. And Peter said something to Jesus. Let's build three, three tents, three shelters. And then Luke adds the editorial note. For he did not know what he was saying. This is one of the most odd stories. There's, it's not like there's this practical unfolding of, oh, that makes sense. The guy was blind, Jesus fixed it, and I have spiritual blindness. No. When's the last time you were ever on a mountain, somebody just who you were camping with just illuminated like a light bulb, and you walked, never. This is a weird thing. So what are we supposed to take away from this experience? Well, there's several things, several things here that we can point to. First one I want to point to is this. This party right here, invite only. The 12 were with him. But who did he take to the mountaintop? Peter, James, and John. It's invite only. 
Seems strange to me. There's three events that happen in Scripture to where Jesus pulls these three aside separately and takes them into it. One of the first ones happens is, and you probably remember this, the story of Jairus and his daughter who died. And the 12 of, the, the 12 of them are there. And then before they go into the house, Jesus calls Peter, James, and John and brings Peter, James, and John into the house with them. They're the only three that see it. Then there's the transfiguration, this moment. And then there's Gethsemane. And that moment where Jesus is pouring out his heart before he is arrested, before he is betrayed by Judas. And who does he have with him? Peter, James, and John. This is an invite-only party. If the, if the unresurrected Jesus Christ has to pull a few people from those who love him and go and spend time with them to help teach, to help renew his own soul, to be around somebody else who can help carry the burden of life, if the unresurrected Jesus has to do that, how much more do you think that you should probably do the same? Yet we go into isolation, we lock ourselves off from the world, we don't want the world to think we're broken and messed up, so you isolate yourself, and all of us stay on the outside wondering, I wonder what's so broken and messed up about them that they lock themselves away. True. If the unresurrected Jesus Christ does that, how much more should we? There's another thing here that happens. It unlocks history. This takes a little bit of digging, so you kind of have to, you kind of have to hang with me for just a second. Just a little bit of digging here. If you go to Luke chapter 3, I want to point to something. John the Baptist is preaching. And he's preaching about the coming of Jesus. Here's what he says. Starting in, um, let's start in verse 15. Let's start in verse 11. That way we have a little bit of context. John is preaching. Some guys come and they say, what should we do? How should we live? John, I hear you preaching, but what is it that you want us to do? Here's John's response. Chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 11. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should share the same, should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? He says, do not collect taxes more than you are required. Then some soldiers came. What should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Then verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but there's one more powerful than I who will come whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news. Verse 19, But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all of the evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John away in prison. Okay. So we need to understand this event for just a minute to understand what the transfiguration is doing. John is now in prison John the Baptist is in prison. He preached against Herod. Herod didn't like it. Put him in jail. But Herod kind of secretly liked John and liked to listen to him and liked to hear what he had to say. He was a little scared of him. 
So John is in prison. So fast forward, jump to Luke chapter 7 for just a second. John has been in prison. And now Jesus, now Jesus and his disciples, as they are moving around, John's disciples kind of fall in with Jesus' disciples. And they want to understand more about who Jesus is. So Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect something else? The story just prior to that is this. Jesus heals the widow's son. John's disciples are present, kind of lingering in the wings. And they see this person get raised from the dead. And so they run back to the jail and they say, John, this is kind of weird. This Jesus guy, your cousin, he just raised somebody from the dead. And then John, stuck in this prison cell with maybe just a shadow of depression, maybe a little bit of doubt, the same one who at the very beginning when he baptizes Jesus, he says, behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew it then, but then he forgot. It's like it kind of fades sometimes. Have you ever had that? Spiritually, you do real good for a long time and you're on fire for the Lord. And then in time, you're just like, I'm not so much on fire as I am smoldering for the Lord. I'm just not nearly as, you know. And John seems to have lost a little bit of touch with that. So he sends his own disciples. He says, go ask Jesus if he's the one that we are expecting or if we should look for someone else. They show up to Jesus. This is a beautiful story. Beautiful, beautiful story. Luke 17, I mean Luke 7, verse 18 through 23. Um, the men come in verse 20. Then when the men come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else this is beautiful verse 21 at that very time jesus cured many who had diseases sickness evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind so he replied to the messenger go back and tell john what you've seen and what you heard okay so check this out um are you jesus are you the one who who we're waiting for who, who john wants to know we don't know we already we already know john wants to know are you the one who's coming or should we wait for someone else and then Jesus turns from these guys over to this group of sick people, <laughs> heals them, all right? Blind, deaf, lame, all walking, all seeing, dancing, all this. <laughs> you know, does this thing. And then turns back and looks at them and goes, go tell John what you've seen. You're stupid. I told you you shouldn't ask him. I told you. And they go. Go tell John what you saw and what you heard. Okay, we'll go tell him. And they get back. <laughs> Can you imagine that conversation? You're an idiot. I'm never going to go ask Jesus another question for you. If you want to talk to him, go talk to him yourself. Done. Doing this in-between thing anymore. It's your cousin anyway. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to find, he asked. A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in the luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, he is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. One more phrase. Verse 28, Jesus speaking of John the Baptist, I tell you, among those born of women... 
there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Then we get to the transfiguration. This is where it unlocks history. Matthew's version of the transfiguration ends with this conversation about the disciples coming down the mountain looking at Jesus and saying, why is it, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come before the Messiah? You see, we've been talking about this for a few weeks, this reoccurring phrase that happens over and over in Scripture, and here's the, or, or in the book of Luke right here, and it's this. Herod thinks that Jesus might be John the Baptist reborn, Elijah, or another prophet. Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Their response was, John the Baptist, Elijah, or some other prophet. Then we get to the transfiguration, and who do we see on the mountain? Elijah, Moses, who is another prophet from long ago, and Jesus. What about John the Baptist? Who was John the Baptist? The transfiguration tells us who John the Baptist is. Matthew's version says this. Matthew chapter 17. The disciples asked him, Why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already came. And they did... And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. Why is this important? All this work we had to do right here to get to this point. Why is it, is it, why is it important that John the Baptist is filling this role of Elijah, that he has come in the spirit of Elijah? Here's, here's why this is important. Because the messianic idea, the idea that Jesus is coming or the Messiah is coming, comes from this Old Testament. And the way you know that the Messiah is here is when you see Elijah. But they did not recognize him, for he was John the Baptist. That means this. If John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, then that makes Jesus him, the one. Who do people say that I am? Peter says, the people say this. And then he says to Peter, who do you say I am? Peter scoots all his chips to the middle of the table and he says, I'm all in. You're him. You're him. You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. You are the one that we have been waiting for since we were trapped in Egypt a million years ago. You are him. Transfiguration unlocks this for us so that we can look back and go, oh. So that's not, that's not huge. But there's another event. There's some other things this event does. This event also stays consistent with the way that God works. Does anybody remember the, the birth of Moses? Do you remember this? Do you remember the story? Pharaoh began to wipe out babies everywhere in Egypt of the Hebrews who were trapped there, God's people. Because they had continued to repopulate so much, they had, they begun, they begin to outgrow Egypt. They could have easily have been taken over all of the land. Pharaoh said, this isn't going to work. So this mass infanticide goes down. Does that sound familiar? 
surrounding the birth of Jesus, there was something similar that happened. Tons of babies are killed. Yet Jesus escapes. So does Moses. Then their ministry goes on. What's interesting is that Moses leaves Egypt and for 40 years he's in the desert tending sheep. Jesus, before he starts his ministry, goes into the desert for how many days? Oh my gosh. When he comes back, his ministry is full of authority and miracles, as Moses' was. And then we come to this mountaintop experiences, which Moses had many to where he sees God face to face, where he deals with him face to face. And every time he does, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's clouds, there's smoke. Uh, the mountain rumbles. Moses comes down from the mountain. And what was Moses' face doing? It's illuminated. Kind of like this moment. And then Moses dies. And you know what scripture says about his death? God buried him on the mountain. Well, that's weird. Put that on my tombstone, would you? God buried him. What? That was the story of his death. Jesus kind of had a strange, uh, a strange death experience too, didn't he? He's dead, then he's back, then he leaves again. And so we start to see these things that are being pieced together. But there's some other things we need to look at some that are very important. It doesn't take very long for Peter, James, and John to look up and realize. Inasmuch as they held the prophets in high regard, Moses, he embodied the law, the Torah, the guiding book of all the Jews, the Torah. He is the physical writer of God's word. And then Elijah, he embodies the prophets and all of, God's pro all of God's prophetic words to the people. So both of those guys are there. And Peter, James, and John, they hold these guys in high regard. And then Peter says this thing that is just kind of funny. We should build three temples. Do you know what this is the equivalent of? Let's take a selfie. <laughs> this is what it is. Capture the moment, don't live in it. Oh, we are such a selfie-centered world, aren't we? Don't live in the moment, capture it, then look at it later. How many things do we miss? Tons. And Peter's just like, ooh, you know what we should do? Everybody don't move, stay put, smile. If we only had another guy, you know? Take a picture, we could do it, we could all stay right here. And this is kind of Peter's thing right here, this, let's take a selfie. And as much as they held those guys in high regard, Jesus is the powerful one there. Did you catch the phrase right there where it says, and as Peter was still speaking, we should do this and this and this, God started speaking. Do you know what that means? God's tired of hearing Peter talk. And he interrupted him. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, listen. Like, check this out. Uh, Luke chapter 9. This is so good. As the men were leaving Jesus, Moses and Elijah, as they were walking, I don't know how they did it, as they were leaving, 
He says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what he was saying. And then verse 34, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So Jesus, here's what I'm thinking. Like if we built three, uh, if we built three temples, three tents, where'd you guys go? Like all the clouds come in, and then God just kind of moves in real close to him, like real face to face. Yo, this is my son. I know you want to get autographs with Elijah and Moses. I know you want to have him sign your robe. But this is my son I'm talking about. And it says that they were terrified. A cloud appeared and enveloped them, and, as, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from heaven, This is my son whom I have chosen, or my beloved, the one I love. And then, that's the same words we heard at Jesus' baptism. But then he adds this piece, Listen to him. Of the three that are there, Jesus is elevated. This is about the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. This is what I absolutely love. That when you come in contact with God, one of the things that is very apparent, that becomes very apparent, is the supremacy of Christ. He is greater. He is greater than the law and the prophets. He's greater. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. A lot of scripture today, so keep up if you've you got, you got a Bible with you. Ephesians chapter 3. 12 through 16. Let me read this to you. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 10. <clears throat> his, intent was that, uh, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Verse 11. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12. In him and through him and, and, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. How do you approach God? The transfiguration shows us. Peter is just talking. Now, I don't want to talk bad about Peter. I don't want to talk bad about Peter. But Peter just keeps talking in the presence of God. And that's not a typical response when people encounter the presence of God. That's not typical. But Peter just keeps talking, and God interrupts him. Whoa, hey. This verse here says this. We can approach God with freedom and confidence. Hebrews chapter 4 says something very similar. That we approach the throne of grace with boldness or confidence. Knowing that our high priest is a high priest who sympathizes with us. Do you know what this tells me? That Jesus is above all else. The world is going to say all religions are equal. All religions talk to God. Scripture is clear. The only access to God comes through one door and one door only. His name is Jesus. And John the writer says this. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other access to God except through there. It would be very similar as if you came to my house and you tried to tell me that you needed to take my daughter's bicycle I need this bicycle. You cannot have her bicycle. She loves her bicycle. 
She loves to ride her bicycle. Yeah, but I, I think she would be okay if I had it. I don't, she didn't tell me that I'm not okay with you taking, get, can you imagine though if Eric Lawrence came and borrowed my daughter's bicycle? Like that, like that would be awesome though, wouldn't it? I might let you borrow it for that. If we could take a selfie. But if my daughter comes and she says, it's okay. Listen, she might be able to give away everything we own if she comes and she says, it's okay with me, Dad. Why? Because if you want access to that, you gotta go through her. That's it. You want access to God? It comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the only way to God. Through Jesus and Jesus alone. There's another thing that happens when we get into the presence of God, when we are aware of the presence of God. We also become aware of our own sinfulness. When you encounter somebody who has absolutely no awareness of their own sinful behavior, their own uh, broke-down human nature, that is somebody who has not experienced the presence of God. When you experience the presence of God in your life, you know what you were made of. I think it's in the Psalms where he says, for God knows what I am and that I am only dust. For he has grace on my life. Why? Because he knows that I am nothing more than organized dirt. When we become aware of the presence of God, we also become aware of our own sinfulness. Here, here's a few examples. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it says they heard God walking in the garden and they ran and hid. Moses, when he encounters the burning bush, he sees that this, bur this bush is burning, but it is not burning up. And so he draws closer and then God speaks from the bush and he says, stop right there. This is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Moses kicked off his shoes, and it says, and he covered up his face, for he was afraid. Isaiah chapter 6. After King Uzziah dies, the prophet Isaiah is praying to the Lord, and then the heavens rip open, and he, be, and he begins to see all of heaven in all of its glory. He hears God speak. And, and the prophet Isaiah has one response. It's this, for I am ruined. Like you come in contact with God, oh, I'm dead. I'm dead. For I'm a man of unclean lips. If you go to the book of First Kings, I think it's chapter 18, Elijah the prophet is in a standoff with the prophets of Baal. And they're trying to prove whose God is greater so they build this big altar over here for Elijah and they put the sacrifice on top and then Elijah says, now cover it in water. And all the people on Elijah's team are like, cover it in water? Cover it in water. Okay? And then he says, cover it in water again. Okay. Cover it in water again. And he steps back and he says, God, do the thing that you do. Fire shoots from heaven, consumes the altar, consumes the rocks, licks up every single bit of the water, and it says the people that were present fell face down and cried. For you are truly God. When you come into the presence of God, this is what happens. 
And the disciples are here on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they see Jesus illuminated. And then they hear the voice of God. And suddenly they realize, Jesus is a pretty big deal. How much of this life are we just so blinded by and distracted by that it, it stands in the way of us being able to see and experience God in the way we need to? We become aware of our sinfulness. There's another thing that happens, and that's this. Language fails. Language fails. And I love this part because I like words. And I like to study words, and I like, I like, I like vocabulary. Uh, I, I like when somebody has a big vocabulary, and they use kind of strange words. Luke and I share this thing, and every once in a while, somebody will, will say, a, say a word, and Luke will come back and be like, hey, you know what a cool word is? I'm like, what? No. And like, he'll tell me, and we'll exchange these words. When you encounter the divine, do you know what happens? Now you speak metaphors. Now you use simile. Because there are not words to explain what is going on there. And then you catch this in Matthew's version of the transfiguration. Matthew writes, uh, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Like we can't, like we don't know. It's like a light bulb, but different, brighter, like a floodlight, like a, you ever like hit your head or did a handstand and then you get these twirly things that are like around and you, it was like that, only you like a lot of them, a lot of them. There's no good way to explain it. Mark's version of the transfiguration, which uh, he also records, his clothes became dazzling white. And this is, this is, this is beautiful. Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Do you, see the, do you see the humanity of reaching for words and, and just, just falling short? I don't know how to express to you this encounter that I had with God. Luke's story then says that his appearance, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And the way the word is written, it is a, a flash of lightning that does not flash. It does not go away. It flashes and it stays flashed. And it just stays that way. And that's Luke's explanation of what happened. If you go to the book of Acts and you read the conversion of Saul when he becomes Paul, Luke writes something very similar. That there was this blinding light from heaven. That there was this thunderous voice. If you go to the book of Revelation, John writes about encountering Jesus or the Lamb. Here's what he writes. Um, Chapter 14, he says, I heard a sound like a mighty rushing water, loud like a peal of thunder. And then verse 19, his eyes are like blazing fire. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword. Human language fails to put together what is on the other side of this life. My challenge would be this. Don't get so caught up in this that you stop imagining, that you stop dreaming what is beyond this life. This is not it. You will be sorely disappointed if all of your eggs go into this basket. The other side is so much greater. We can see it with the loss of language. Our world, the, the thing that defines us as human beings, our communication falls apart in the presence of God. What does that tell you about the place we're headed? That it must be powerful. Heaven's agenda 
It's another thing we learn about. They are speaking, Elijah and Moses, and what are they talking to Jesus about? It says his departure. You're going you to love this. You know what the Greek word is? Exodus. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Talking, Moses talking to Jesus about Jesus' exodus. What? Do you know what it was called when Moses went into Egypt and got the Israelites and pulled them out? It's called the exodus. When he saved his people from bondage, exodus. And then he writes, they were talking about Jesus' own exodus. When Moses went in and he looked at Pharaoh in the face and he said, God says, let my people go. Was there this strange exchange between Moses and Jesus? To where Moses said to Jesus, listen, when you see Satan face to face, I want you to point your finger at him like this. And I want you to say it just like this. Let my people go. That would be cool to me if you would do that. Let my people. Use my line. That's my favorite. Your dad gave it to me. I'm giving it to you. Use that. Let my people go. Use that line. This was the discussion on the mountain. This is about heaven's agenda. If all of heaven is having this conversation about when Jesus is going to redeem the saints, when he's going to pull all of us out of this bogged down life and walk us into this triumphant procession, if that's heaven's agenda, and that's what they're talking about, how much more should that be part of our conversation? Last one. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the transfiguration. And they all record the story that happens immediately after the transfiguration. And it's the same. These two stories are the same. They fit together in, in the three Gospels, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the next thing that happens at the transfiguration is they come down the mountain and immediately they're met by a man who says, Can you help me? My son is demon-possessed. I love, I love when I have an experience with a church group or a lecture that I get to go to or when I get to set with other people, elders meetings and we get to pray or with friends and accountability partners and we get to pray. And I appreciate those times. And there's these times that I think to myself, man, it would be awesome if it could just be like this all the time. You know those moments in your faith to where you just feel like you and God are doing good? Like we're just doing good. And I don't want anything about this to change. I want to stay strong in this area. I want to keep walking this way. I want my faith to be solid. And then I'm reminded when I read this story, of what we accepted in the mission when we accepted Jesus as our Savior what did he do he commissioned us to do what march back down out of the mountaintop experience back into the valley of the demon possessed 
And we can't stay there. This is why it doesn't work for you to lock yourself away and just want to pray all the time and listen to Christian music all the time and not spend time with sinners ever, ever, ever because they're naughty, naughty, naughty. I don't want it to get them, I don't want them to get that on me. No, 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 no. Jesus teaches us with the transfiguration story and what happens after that, this very thing. That in this life, we live with our heaven, I mean, with our heart and our soul set on heaven and our body and our resources here on earth. In essence, we walk with one foot in heaven and we walk with one foot on the earth. That we extend with one hand to the Lord to pray. And with the other, we reach to the people around us who are broken and beat up. And that is the cross we carry to where we are reaching one direction for him and another direction for others. And this is the cross that we carry. He has called us to be the interceder, the one who stands between God and them. And this is the message that we bring to the rest of the world. Oh, I would love to lock myself away from all people who cause me trouble. Would love to, wouldn't you? If only we could just go on vacation all the time. Never go back to work. Just be on vacation all the time. Time out. Have you been on vacation? It's not all that. When you come back, you know what you want? Vacation. Work. Routine. We figure out how to live in the balance between what he has called us to do, who he has called us to be, to where we reach out for him and we enjoy communion with God. We enjoy communion with other Christians. We also put on the full armor of God and we march back down into the valley of the demon possessed because that's what he's called.